Eat Drink DFW from the Dallas Morning News is made possible by Central Market. Hey, North Texas food fans. Welcome to Eat Drink DFW from the Dallas Morning News. Each week we dish on the local restaurant scene, food and drink trends, cooking and shopping tips, and unpack everything that makes North Texas one of the most vibrant, diverse, and ambitious food scenes in the country. I'm your host, food editor Aaron Bookie, and this week we have a special guest, local rancher Thomas Locke of Bodark Meat Company, who raises heritage pigs and grass-fed cattle using regenerative agriculture. We're also talking about small bars and restaurants like Grapevine Bar, Cadillac, and El Rincon, who are making big moves. But how much change do we actually like? We'll find out right after this. Central Market is really into food, like fish flown in so fresh it still has jet lag into food. Our sourdough starter has been around since grunge was a thing into food. We're talking more prime cuts than a greatest hits album into food. Central Market is really into food. If you are too, then we're the HQ for you. Whether you're a make every recipe in the cookbook foodie or a my favorite recipes reheat type who just digs the delectable, no place makes every day more delicious like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com. Welcome back, everyone. Be sure to go to dallasnews.com slash food for information on our show and all the latest restaurant news. And don't forget to tell us what you think at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. Later on in this episode, we'll be chatting with Texas rancher Thomas Locke about food safety and regenerative agriculture. But first, we're catching up on restaurant news with reporters Sarah Blaskovich and Imelda Garcia and our producer, Julie Fisk. We had a lot of restaurant news in the past week about old favorites making big changes. Sarah, what was your biggest one? Has to be Grapevine Bar, which is now at the time of this podcast coming out closed on Maple Avenue after more than 27 years. They had goodbye parties all week and they are moving to the medical district. But Grapevine Bar, as you knew it, that funky, strange, vintage furniture filled bar with a big backyard and a basketball hoop outside, that is gone as we know it. What I loved about this story was it was the most fun moving story that I've read in a while because Grapevine Bar is so unique when it comes to all of their stuff in the bar. Yes. Yes. They put yellow tags on all the stuff that they were selling because this bar, when it opened in 1996, the owner says quite bluntly, we didn't have any money. We wanted to open a bar, but we didn't even really know how to do that. So they would drive around and get stuff off of people's curbs and put it in the bar. They would get stuff donated. And anybody who's been to the Grapevine knows that none of the barware matches. You might get a really awesome glass and I might get kind of a crappy glass. They grabbed their favorite mismatched stuff to move over to the new place. And then they are still scavenging for free and very inexpensive stuff for the new place. So that sort of vibe hasn't changed, even though it'll be in a new spot. But they decided to sell anything that regulars might want. So they were selling the pink felted pool table and they even wanted to sell the basketball hoop. Uh, it's just so grapevine, right? To sell the stuff that they don't want instead of throwing it away. And then of course, to make a little bit of money so that they can buy more used stuff. And why they change? Because they have been there for like 30 years. This is a sad story that has become like my side beat. The Grapevine Bar is going to be bulldozed. And I have now been living in this town and reporting on restaurants and bars long enough to see my favorite places get flattened. Oh. And the Grapevine Bar is one that eventually will be flattened. The developers of Old Parkland across the street own that piece of property. And the owner knew for a long time that she was going to need to move the Grapevine. Regulars wondered if it would really happen and what that would mean. And she promised them, we really are going to move the Grapevine. You just have to move with us. And so that finally happened this week. Why is it so hard 
for North Texas to keep its classic bars and restaurants. Like you said, it's constant. Yes. Especially right now. Why is this so hard? You know, I think we have a city where developers have so much opportunity and money to build something new and shiny. And anybody who spent a little bit of time in Europe, for instance, I mean, we're all like bowled over by the idea that stuff can be 500 years old and still standing. You know, I moved out of a house that was built in 1952 last year, and I would have told you that's the oldest place in the entire world in Dallas. <laughs> it was, it had no insulation. I mean, it, you know, it was 70 something years old. Yeah, we don't do old here. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for me when there's feelings encapsulated inside of a building. The place where my husband and I had our first date, Idle Rich, it was bulldozed a couple of weeks ago. You drive by, they're still picking up the pieces of rebel now. You know, those are my memories with my husband on our first night that are gone. I think we really lose a part of ourselves when we just consistently turn over important places like this. I just don't understand why we find no worth in old places around here. Yeah. One good thing about this Grapevine Bar story is that the bar is actually relocating because Julie, to your point, a lot of the buildings that end up getting torn down, those bars or restaurants are just gone. So Grapevine will be at the old Redfields neighborhood tavern in the medical district. The original Grapevine was always a very LGBTQ plus friendly place, even though it was not technically a gay bar. And so they're moving to a space that has some history with the gay community, good and bad. So they're kind of trying to create a new beginning at a much larger place. So for the Grapevine, I'm just going to hope, you know, that there is a new beginning for this place that people have loved for 27 years. Imelda, you've been covering a similar story about a restaurant that has recently moved. Do you remember El Rincón del Maíz, this little restaurant in Garland? Yes. Uh, they offer vegan and Southeast Mexican food. Well, now they are in Denton, very, very near downtown. The food, let me tell you, is spectacular. <laughs> no, for real, because you know what? They have this, a lot of dishes of uh, Yucatan, this cuisine that has been recognized as one of the best in the world. So they have this cochinita pibil, that is this pork prepared with achiote. It's great. It's very traditional in Mexico. They also have this Mexican vegan menu. And most of the dishes that they prepare with meat, they prepare also with fruits, vegetables, and flowers. That's it's fascinating. Great. For example, they have this hibiscus tinga. That is like the chicken one, but it's with hibiscus. So it's like, what? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, they have this coconut chicharrón in salsa verde. It will blow your mind. So Imelda, did it leave Garland to go to Denton or are they now in both places? So they leave Garland because the place was like really small for them because they became huge after they were named one of the best 50 restaurants in the U.S. by Bon Appetit magazine. So one part I loved about the story was when they were recognized by Bon Appetit, they had no idea what Bon Appetit even was. <laughs> and they yeah, missed for real. And they missed the email telling them yeah. that they were named one of the 50 best restaurants in the country because they thought it was spam. Yeah, it's it's very sweet. I yeah, love that. Sure. Yeah. Chef Michelle Torres and her husband, Carlos Guillem, were complete strangers to this restaurant business, you know? Right. The chef started cooking this vegan food because she became sick. Mm -hmm. So she was like trying new dishes at home. And her husband was like, you know what? Your food is very good. We have to open a restaurant. They opened this place and after only eight months, they received this recognition. And they were like, what is that? They even don't have the magazine where they are 
Someone should get them a copy. So did they get a lot of business after this recognition? Is that why they kind of had to move? Because I think the Garland location was an old Sonic. Yeah, it was so really, it was really tiny. <laughs> yeah, they can only host there like 30 people. And now they have a place like for more than 100. So yeah. Oh, wow. So there's one more big restaurant change this last week, Sarah. Yes, Cadillac Barbecue, which has been around for 12 years and serves some of the best brisket in Texas. That's agreed upon by many people, not just me. But I'm, <laughs> I'm a big fan of Cadillac Barbecue. The owner, Todd David, sold his restaurant to one of the pitmasters who has worked for him for six years. So a 34-year-old man, he and his wife bought this business. They have three little kids, one of which is like a month old. I mean, they're just busy. But um, this younger man is obsessed with barbecue, studied under Todd David, was inspired to even get into barbecue after meeting Aaron Franklin at his Austin restaurant. If anybody is wondering what happens next at Cadillac, the short answer is not much. They want this place to stay the same. And if you've ever been to Cadillac, you know, they're only open Thursday, Friday for lunch and they sell out by two o'clock. And then they're open the first Saturday of the month. So you can't get barbecue very easily at Cadillac. You, You have to want to want it. You have to want to stand in line. I am one of those barbecue consumers and I've stood in that line more times than I can count. It is worth it. And the only change I think we'll see is that the new owner wants to add every Saturday as opposed to the first Saturday of the month. But that hasn't happened yet. So I expect Cadillac to continue to have good quality, but we'll all keep an eye on it. And you should just know that the man who started it is sort of passing it down to someone who he believes can run it just as well. I feel like that's just sort of the ultimate restaurant story is being able to pass down your restaurant to someone that you know it will be in good hands with. Yeah, it has to be the hardest thing to do. Todd David started Cadillac as a hobby. He had retired from a totally different business and started smoking meat in his backyard. You know, it was just like one of those, like, maybe I'll try this kind of thing. It was really, really good. So we opened a restaurant. It didn't have any seats for the first like three, four years. You know, it's just, it's a good story about these really nice family people who've handed it to a new family. Boy, imagine the pressure, though, of being that new owner to try to maintain that quality. Okay, guys, not to change the subject, but I have had three bags of chips on my desk for two or three weeks, and I need us to try these chips. The brand is Low and Slow, and they are smoked potato chips. Hmm. So there is a regular, like, Ruffles-looking chip with ridges on it. There is a tortilla chip and a barbecue corn chip that I would say is a cousin to a Frito. Okay. Oh, I wonder if it'll be good with chili. We should start with the potato chips. These are supposed to be kind of barbecue flavored. Okay. So everybody gets to listen to us eat food again. (laughs) Aren't you guys so glad? (laughs) I always wonder if people get grossed Mm, out because you know how some people have a real thing about listening to people chew food? Mm -hmm. Those people are listening to the wrong thing. Yeah, apologize. Oh, they smell great. There are other pots. Ooh. Mm, Okay. They smell like a barbecue restaurant. That's a barbecue chip. And so are these made locally? They are made in Texas which I think is why they're interested in the Dallas Morning News trying them. What do you think of the barbecue potato chips? Can you taste the smoke? Great, mm-hmm. I need more. Oh, good. Okay, so it tastes like a regular barbecue chip. Then you get sort of the smoke afterburn. Mm. I can Tasting take the, <laughs> I can taste the wood. I mean, it's like, it's, it's really smoky. good. I love it's that you said that. Imelda, you're right. These were smoked with hickory. A lot of pitmasters talk about the different wood. You know, we use post oak for brisket because it tastes right with the brisket. And um, a lot of barbecue folks will change up their wood. And if you are a good taster, you can taste the difference. Like I've done a taste test with brisket where it was smoked in three or four different kinds of wood. And we did a blind test not knowing which wood it was, but you could tell a distinct difference. And we had to guess and then match by smelling the wood. And so I love that you can taste that, Imelda, because these were smoked with hickory and you can taste it. I need more chips. All right, let's do tortilla chips next. Hmm. I am not a person who eats a naked tortilla chip, but I didn't bring salsa, so sorry. (laughs) 
<laughs> These are quite simply tortilla chips with no flavor on them, meant to be dipped in something probably. Boy, they smell smoky though. This smells like a barbecue joint. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, yeah. right? Okay, these smell smokier than they taste. These are good, but now I need guacamole. And so these are actually smoked. It's not that smoke flavor. Oh, that's cool. They're actually smoked with real smoke from real hickory wood, it says huh. on the okay. back of the label. Hmm. Okay, one more. These are the ones that look like Fritos, but we're going to, this is a lowercase f Frito because these are not Fritos. Okay. I don't want to run into any trademark issues. Yeah. This is good because <laughs> I actually, whenever I make Frito pie lately, Fritos have been sold out. Have y'all noticed that? Yes. It's hard to find Fritos also, lately. Also, Fritos are expensive. Huh. Yeah. I feel like this is the loudest snack that we've eaten on the oh, show. Oh, give us a good crunch. Mm, That's good. These are great. Mm. Oh, I love these. These have secret rub. Oh, okay. On them, they're not wanting to tell us, but the ingredients say... The barbecue rub includes sugar, brown sugar, mm -hmm. salt, onion mm -hmm. powder, red bell pepper, garlic powder, spices, paprika. I can taste the sugar with the salt in there. Those are my favorite. These are so good. Can we just sit around and eat the rest of these chips? <laughs> yeah. Yes. While we're doing this, I needed to thank you, Sarah. You got me out of a, a real pickle recently. My, a food pun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my daughter, her birthday was coming up and she was sad. Because her big sister was going off to college the day of her birthday. Oh, that's that's a bad day. It was, oh. yeah. So she was really not looking forward to her birthday. And I was trying to figure out a good way to, to really celebrate. And I asked you, I was like, where are the best places to get a chocolate cake? Because yep. she requested a chocolate cake. And you gave me an amazing list. And we ended up getting a chocolate cake from Cake Bar. And it was beautiful. Oh, good. Did you get the whole cake or buy the slice? We got the whole cake. Uh -huh. And it was chocolate cake with chocolate icing. And they did a happy sweet 16 on top with little yellow roses. It was delicious. And we ate it for like four days and it was still really, really good. Those cakes are tall. Yeah. Like, so you get all the layers of, of frosting in the middle of those nice chunks of cake. Cake Bar is an excellent choice. I'm glad you picked. Cake Bar, for anybody listening, is in West Dallas, in Trinity Groves. They even have a cake vending machine outside of the restaurant where you can buy cake by the slice. I love that. So you had a bunch of other places you recommended, though. What were they? Because I do want to try the other, and I'm eating more chips. Sorry. Yeah, please eat. Um, Yeah, anybody who's interested in chocolate cake or tarts, I did a little deep dive after Julie asked. So I also think Bisu Bisu has really great chocolates. The thing I like about Bisu Bisu in Uptown Dallas is they make these little cakes that are technically tarts that feed one or two people. So, you know, say your daughter only wanted a little bit for herself or somebody else in the family says, I don't eat chocolate cake. Bisu Bisu's dark chocolate tart. It's a 1.5 inch diameter for the little and then a three inch for one that feeds two. And I just think that's like cute. I love cake bar. And then the other idea I have for chocolate cake is Italy. So you go to North Park, you go downstairs to their cafe and they have all these beautiful desserts, or you can go up one more level and they have those tarts and other stuff right before you get to the pizza. The thing about Italy is you go there and you totally eat with your eyes. So mm -hmm. if you go for a chocolate cake, I bet you go home with not only a chocolate cake, I bet you end up getting a tart and a something else because Italy's desserts are just so beautiful. That's the best part is that you can get multiple things. I love going through that line. And, and they're just, little. Oh, they're little and beautiful. They're oh. zero calories too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Thanks so much, Sarah. And to our listeners out there, if you have a favorite chocolate cake that you like to buy or even a recipe, please email us at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. Coming up next, we talk to one local farmer about his thoughts on the food system. That's right after this.
Central Market is really into food. Like, when we say cheese, it's in 12 languages into food. Butchers, bakers, and sushi roll makers into food. We're talking so obsessive about quality you can shop blindfolded into food. Central Market is really into food. If you are too, then let us turn your shopping list into a treasure map. Get inspired, get adventurous, or just get a chef-made dinner when you've got more taste buds than time. No place makes every meal more amazing like Central Market. Really into food. Shop now at centralmarket.com. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we talked about the disturbing Netflix documentary, Poisoned. We got some good feedback from listeners, including local farmer Thomas Locke of Bodark Meat Company in Allen's Chapel, Texas. His farm focuses on regenerative agriculture, which is starkly different from the industrial agriculture that was showcased in the documentary. So first of all, Thomas, thank you for for joining our podcast and for listening to it. Can you tell us a little bit about your farm and what regenerative agriculture is? Yeah, we have had this land and had our farm since about 1850 when my family came from Virginia. We farm up on a hilltop just above Bordart Creek in northeast Texas, about an hour and a half northeast of Dallas. Pretty much for the first 100 years of our farm's existence, my family immediately started plowing up the land, planting cotton and other cash crops. But being up on a hill, basically every single time that it rained or the wind blew and we didn't have a root system in the ground, the soil would erode, Mm -hmm. blow away or wash away. And so by the time my grandfather got back from World War II, we really weren't able to grow anything out here anymore. And so he started raising cattle. That also coincided with the beginning of industrial agriculture. At the end of World War II, we started adopting chemicals. We had this abundance of ammonium nitrate suddenly, which is this potent chemical fertilizer. And so he started um, embracing those methods. And then as a kid in the early 80s, my trips to the farm were bucolic in many ways. Never thought that I was ever going to be a farmer. I always thought I was going to wear a tie to work and, you know, live in the suburbs. And then my wife got accepted to graduate school at Duke and we moved to Durham, North Carolina, and they have a vibrant local food scene out there. Mm -hmm. And so we would go to the farmer's market. I would start taking farm tours. And it occurred to me that that was the lifestyle that I'd been wanting to live for a very long time. And so I remember staring at the ceiling. It was like 530 in the morning and I was waiting for Jillian to wake up. And when I heard her kind of moving, I rolled over and I said, I want to move back to Texas and start farming. And her first words were, I'd rather live in a car for the rest of my life. But to her credit, she allowed me to follow my dream. And she graduated, got a job that allowed me to quit my career and start farming. And then we moved to Texas in August of 2014. And regenerative agriculture, it's the process of mimicking nature to build soil and promote ecological diversity while also raising either beef or chicken or pork or also just growing crops. You can practice regenerative agriculture no matter what style of agriculture you're practicing. It's really just farming with a sense of reverence and respect for nature and building soil, sequestering carbon, and then restarting the cycles of nature that humans have broken through the practice of industrial agriculture. And so what do you raise on your farm? And is it difficult to raise them in this regenerative agriculture fashion? Well, it's kind of yes and no. So right now, the answer is uh, it is hard because it's 110 degrees and it stopped raining in mid-July. But it's also easier because, I mean, while other people are selling their herds because they don't have any grass, because their soil is just void of life and can't hold any more water anymore, our soil is holding more water. We've increased our pH from 5.5 to 7. We've increased our organic matter. We've fixed mineral deficiencies in our soil all through the process of regenerative agriculture with grazing animals on a historic grassland. Mm -hmm. We still have grass in front of us. And, you know, the herd looks great. We need some rain, but compared to other farms, you know, our land is more resilient. And that's because we've adopted the laws of nature as our guide and they work. 
speaking of the documentary Poisoned, I mean, I think a lot of what people are wondering right now is how do we feel better about our food and how do we find safer sources of food? Do you think food from local farms are inherently safer from pathogens than industrial farms? I would say no, not inherently. It just depends on how people are growing their food or raising, you know, their animals. The two systems are very, very different. I mean, the industrial system of agriculture is this global system. It's propped up by uh, huge government subsidies, and there's these you know, global multi-billion dollar corporations that are running them. It's kind of like comparing apples and oranges. And you know, on my farm, I'm a farmer, I'm a mechanic, I'm a biologist, I'm a vet, I'm a business owner, I'm a marketing expert, quote unquote. <laughs> you know, although I'm not an expert really on any of those things, small farmers are asked to do everything. But generally speaking, yeah, if you have a relationship with the person that you're buying food from and you can visit their farm, yeah, it's going to be a lot safer. And in the documentary, you know, they talk about bagged lettuce can come from all these different places and ground beef can have DNA from a thousand different cows in it. Our ground beef comes from one cow. We're small enough and other local farmers are small enough that you can really pay attention to details. And also the food is, is going to be fresh. Did you happen to watch the documentary Poisoned? I'm curious what you thought about it being in that industry. I did watch it. Actually, I I was on y'all's website, Dallas Morning News Food website, and I saw the podcast and I didn't want to listen to it until I watched the documentary. And then I, you know, it was like 10 o'clock and I listened to your podcast and I really enjoyed that. I thought the documentary was good. It was a little bit, I mean, they filmed it in such a way to try to evoke feelings from the people watching it very clearly. I mean, the music that they played and I actually looked up statistics. I think 3,000 people die from foodborne illnesses every year. 4,000 people die from choking. So, you know, there could be a documentary on people chewing their food better. So (laughs) it's not good that 3,000 people die, clearly. I mean, it's a tragedy. I can't imagine my child dying from a foodborne illness. No parent can. But all in all, with 330 million people in our country, you know, eating three or more times a day, generally speaking, I think that our food system is actually pretty safe. It could be safer. Like, we should not have confined animal feeding operations next to fields of lettuce. Mm -hmm. We just shouldn't do that. Uh And really, I think, you know, as a regenerative farmer, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't have confined animal feeding operations at all. But that's the system that we have. And it's really up to consumers to slowly start spending money differently one night a week, two nights a week. You know, buying food from Profound Foods, as you mentioned in the podcast, Aaron, or a local rancher and just having an entirely local meal. It's really all about just spending money differently. That makes me feel really good. I was the one who felt really bad after the documentary. And I just want to say thank you. That's (laughs) it affected me. I have little kids. I I felt concerned and like I couldn't do anything about it. This is this is good for me and for anybody listening who really felt grossed out and powerless. I think they did that on purpose. I mean, to evoke that emotion. (laughs) I I felt the same way. It's probably more dangerous to get in your car every day and drive. Or get into a corral with cattle, which is something I do often. (laughs) Like, oh my gosh. You've never seen someone run faster than when they're in a corral and a cow gets angry. (laughs) Hi, Thomas. This is Imelda Garcia. Hello. I need some more peace because in the documentary, they said that our authorities doesn't have like much regulations about the water with which they irrigate. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So, you know, I was actually in Austin. My sister lives there and they're very conscious about the food that they buy and consider themselves very progressive. And we were talking about my farm and Katie said, how do you get around the water issue with beef? You know, beef takes so much water to produce. And I said, actually, that comes from irrigating the corn and the soy that the cows in confined animal feeding operations then eat. And also, you know, then they're pumping groundwater in these feedlots to water the cows. The cows on my farm just drink pond water. I mean, water that when it rains, it fills up a pond. We don't irrigate our grass with anything. 
we're not using groundwater like people think of when they think of bee production is inherently wasteful with water. And in fact, building organic matter in your soil, which is what cows help you do, helps restart the water cycle. An increase in 1% organic matter allows one acre of soil to hold an additional 20,000 gallons of water, which refills our aquifers, which cools the air. But as far as regulating our natural resources with regards to agriculture, we absolutely should be doing that. I mean, when we fly over the panhandle of Texas, you just see these crop circles in a desert. That's all corn and soy and wheat that's being grown primarily to feed animals confinement, but also to create plant-based foods that people eat to think that they're doing a good thing. And they're just draining the Ogallala aquifer to grow this food so that some global food corporation can make more money. It just doesn't make any sense to me that we're doing that. And they mentioned this in the film, the food lobby is incredibly powerful, just like so many other lobbies. Right. And in a polarized political environment that we have today, perhaps more polarized than since the Civil War, perhaps, the proverbial water cooler is industrial agriculture. It's what Republicans and Democrats come together on when they pass the farm bill every year. And what they argue about isn't the farming part of the farm bill, it's about the SNAP benefits. Mm-hmm. But they agree on industrial agriculture. You look at John Tester or Amy Klobuchar, and then you go to Ted Cruz. I mean, it's the one thing that they agree on pretty much is industrial agriculture. So it's a really hard thing for me to think about federal politicians, especially creating any regulation that's going to fix the system. It's really going to be a consumer-driven movement in my mind. Hi, Thomas. This is Julie. I'm the producer. One of the things that scares me the most, but I'm an easily frightened human, is the talk about (laughs) water shortage. The idea that water is going away and that it's a potential crisis in some areas. Shouldn't we all be trying harder to save water? We should. We should. Yeah. And, you know, agriculture is a huge part of that, a huge part of it. And it's not just in the fact that we're wasting water in the way that we're irrigating. It's also that there are solutions embedded in regenerative agriculture. When you have a living root system growing all year round on a thousand acre field of corn, every time it rains, that soil is able to hold more water. So more of that water, like I said earlier, percolates underground to refill our aquifers. There's less drought mitigation, blood mitigation. The soil just holds more water. It's like soil that's full of organic matter. It's like pouring water on a loaf of bread. Soil that's not full of organic matter is like pouring water on a tabletop covered in flour. The flour is just going to run off along with the water. And then Mm -hmm. with the bread, of course, it's going to get absorbed. But we are so, as a human, as a species these days, our culture is so removed from nature. It's like we don't even look to nature anymore for solutions to problems that are embedded in nature, such as running out of water or not being able to grow food the way that we used to grow food. You know, that's my mission every day when I wake up is to build soil, promote ecological diversity on our farm, and then also write about it and speak about it and try to help people find solutions in nature. And conservation is a huge part of that. We should be using less water, but also buying food differently is a great way to conserve resources. You know, one of the three most important things in life, which is water, food, shelter, water. Tell us where people can buy your meat. Well, you can go to BoardArcMeatCompany.com or find me on Instagram at BoardArcMeatCompany. And of course, I had to create a unique name for the farm. It's just calling it Lost Family Farm. So BoardArc is spelled B-O-I-S-D-A-R-C meat company. That's a little confusing. And then we don't go to farmer's markets anymore. After I had a child, I wanted to stay home. So I can meet you somewhere or we just kind of figure it out. We're small enough to be able to do that. Supporting small farms must be important to you. Where do you get your produce? We grow a lot of it. We actually have a very big garden in our backyard. But Profound Foods is a remarkably convenient way to get local produce. I mean, they'll deliver it to your door. Comeback Creek Farm, they might sell it at St. Michael's Farmer's Market. They are an amazing farm. I also love Juha Ranch. I sold next to them for a long time at the Dallas Farmer's Market. 
My uncle sells chicken at the Richardson Farmers Market. It's called Home Place Hill Farms. It tastes absolutely amazing. So yeah, those are a few of them. But to say that North Texas has room for improvement in our local food system is the biggest understatement in the world. Like we, <laughs> yes. uh, we have so much room for improvement as far as supporting local food. We have to make it more convenient. Well, this has been awesome, Thomas. Thank you so much. You made us all feel better. And we'll definitely have to have you back on when we get our hands on some sheet meat, because I know you probably have thoughts on the fake meat products. (laughs) Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. I have plenty of thoughts. (laughs) Well, I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun and thanks for asking me to come on. And that's all the time we have for Eat Drink DFW this week. Thank you all for joining and I hope we've made you hungry for more. We also want to hear from you, so share your food thoughts, favorite restaurants, or tasty recipes with us at eatdrink at dallasnews.com. The show is produced by Julie Fisk. To stay up to date on every episode of this show and hear more from our newsroom, just follow the Dallas Morning News wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate the show and give us a good review. Find links to everything we do at dallasnews.com slash listen. You'll also find a special membership offer there just for listeners. For the news, I'm Erin Bookie. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Eat, drink, DFW from the Dallas Morning News is made possible by Central Market.